I want to preach to you today what I have labeled Jesus among the sharks. Deep dive, sharks. That's about as close. That's all this message is going to have to do with sharks. Okay, I, I titled this long before I put the message together. I'm not going to talk to you about sharks today. I'm going to talk to you about nightmares, though. You ever have a nightmare when you're sleeping and you wake up in a cold sweat? I don't mean a, a, a casual dream. I mean a nightmare where everything's terrible and everything's bad and you wake up and you seem to believe that it really happened. Have you ever been there and done that? I've done that. These days, because my life is so boring, I dream a lot about normal things. I dream about work. I dream about work. I dream about work. You can say, Joe, it's a calling. It's not work. My calling is work. Don't ever forget it. I dream about work, I dream about family, I dream about grandkids, and I dream about conversations I have with people. You ever do that, dream just about casual conversations? Usually I think that happens because I've, I, I usually am thinking through the conversation I'm going to have with somebody, and then when I go to sleep I have it. And the problem with that is, I will wake up in the morning and somewhere in that week or on down the line, I'll lose it. I won't know whether I really had that conversation with somebody already or if I dreamt that conversation. You're you're all shaking your heads like you can relate to this. I get the two confused. And what I plan to happen may or may not have happened, but I just have to ask the question, did I dream that or did that really happen? That is a bit of a concept that's going to show up in today's message. So let's walk through these 22nd to the 30th verses together, and I will explain to you why. All spoke well of him. I love it. They marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. Jesus' words were grace-filled. As he spoke that day, as he read from the scripture, as he greeted them when he came into the synagogue, he was full of grace, and they couldn't, they couldn't pass that up. They couldn't be miss, miss it, but there was something about them that said, let's not get too sucked in by what he's got to say. And the reason I say that to you is because of what they said. They, they spoke well of him. They marveled at the words, gracious words that came from his mouth, but then they tacked on this. Isn't this Joseph's son? I mean, isn't this the kid we have known and watched grow up? Why are grace-filled words coming from him? To give you an illustration of that, I mean, go back to my hometown, and I show up. I'm in no way equating myself with Jesus, but if I'm going to preach a message, there will inevitably be somebody who will show up and say, you know, I remember when you, and then it's all downhill from there, you know. I got to start telling them, you know, hey, it's all under the blood, you know. <laughs> you know? God forgave me of that long ago, but they haven't. So they're saying about Jesus, you see, eh, we like the gracious words, and we're going to ooh and ooh over you, but we're still going to hold that one piece we can hold that says, ah, you're just a kid from the neighborhood. And so Jesus responds to them. He says, doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, physician Heal yourself. What we've heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. Can I tell you that Jesus is reading their minds right now? Understand that when Jesus speaks and says, doubtless, you'll quote to me this proverb. He says, I know what you're going to say. You're going to say, because you said, isn't this Joseph's son? You're going to say, he's just like us. He grew up a poor carpenter's son. He's got the same issues we have. And so, Jesus, before you expect us 
to buy in completely to what you have to say, you're going to have to understand that you need to fix yourself first. You need to fix yourself first. His words were gracious, but, but he's about to say to them, today this has been fulfilled in your hearing. And they are going to say, come on, Jesus, if you want to prove that to us, you're going to have to do more than speak sugar-coated words of grace. We want to see miracles. Look at what they said. They said, I guess you're looking up here, we've heard what you did at Capernaum. Do that here. Just so you know, Jesus did more of his miracles in Capernaum than anywhere else. Jairus' daughter, Peter's mother-in-law, the woman with the issue of blood, the great drought of fishes, all of those things and many more took place in Capernaum. So they're saying to Jesus, you know, if you really want us to buy in that you're just one of us, but now you're something special, Jesus, if you really want us to buy into that, do a little bit of that stuff that you did in Capernaum over here. Jesus knew they were going to say that. That's why he said, doubtless, you'll quote this to me, this proverb, heal yourself. Many times in the book of Luke, and I could... I'm going to read you a little scripture in a little bit, so I didn't want to read these ones to you, but there's like five or six times in the book of Luke where Luke writes these words, Jesus knowing what they thought, or Jesus knowing what they were going to say. He, he knew, can I tell you something? He knows you better than you know the back of your hand. He created you. He know, so he knew what they were going to say. How could this carpenter's son ever pass off as the Messiah that we've been looking for? You know, Jesus, deal with your own problems before you try to deal with ours. They were essentially saying to Jesus, you know, Jesus, take that log out of your eye before you come messing with ours. Jesus knew that. So he said to them, you know, you're going to tell me heal myself. You're going to tell me to do some miracles. I get that. But here's what I'm going to say to you. Truly, I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. This proverb, this, this proverb that he names is very simple. If you achieve any level of greatness and your name is Jesus, you're never going to be fully trusted in your homeland. It actually runs a little bit deeper than that. Because what Jesus is saying to them by reading from Isaiah 61 is that I run in the long line of prophets, Isaiah Jeremiah, Amos, Obadiah. I, I run in that line, and here I am in front of you, and I know you're not going to buy that because you are my peers. I grew up with you. But then he says, but in truth, I tell you there were many widows in Israel at the days of Elijah when the heavens shut up three years and six months and a great famine came over all the land. Now, I want to go back to that other verse. If you're watching that screen... I want you to look how the, the last verse, the words that, that is in it, and I'll get back to this. Look at what he says. He says, truly, right? He said, truly, right? Now, in the verse that we're at now, verse 25, but in truth. The root word, but a different word is used in those two verses. They have the same root, but they have different, what we call implied meanings. In this verse, verse 22, where Luke says, Jesus said, truly I say to you, in that verse, Jesus is saying, this is a truth that's generally accepted. And so listen to what he said. He said, 
what we generally accept is that no prophet is going to be accepted in his hometown. But now he says in this verse, but in truth. And what he's saying here is in reality. You see, the truth here means I know what you believe. You should never accept the prophet that came from your hometown. But in reality, and in reality, he starts to talk about Elijah and Elisha. Jesus, did you ever have, when you were in school, a compare and contrast question on a test or an exam? I couldn't stand compare and contrast questions on an exam. Jesus, right here with these two statements, is really giving them a compare and contrast. I know what you believe, but here's the truth. And, 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 and he goes on to tell them, Elisha, and I'm going to jump into this in a minute, you know, it, it, Elijah, when the heavens were shut up three years and six months, a great famine came over all the land, and Elijah was sent to none of them but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel at the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed but only Naaman the Syrian. Let's stop and talk about that for a minute. Both Elijah and Elisha, in the stories that Jesus gave to them here, Remember, Jesus is in his hometown amongst Jews, right? He's in the synagogue. He's with God's chosen people here. But he starts to tell them stories about Elijah and Elisha. And the story that he tells them, both of these characters do not go to the Jews. They actually go to the Gentiles. And they don't go because they were rejected by the Jews. They go because that's where God sent them. So remember, remember on this day that when Jesus is speaking in the synagogue, they love his grace-filled words. And now suddenly, the grace-filled words that Jesus speaks about is not only for the people in the synagogue, it's for everybody. And God sent it for everybody. And it's meant for everybody. Let me just recount for you what happened in the story of Elijah. It's found in 1 Kings 17. And I'm going to read it to you real quick. But it's important so you can get a grasp on what Jesus is saying to them that's going to upset them so much. Remember, for three and a half years there's been a famine. No one in Israel has anything to eat. They are really in trouble. You think your store shelves have problems now? You can't imagine. They didn't have Walmart or Giant Eagle or anything else. There was a famine in the land. And here's here's the way 1 Kings recounts this. The word of the Lord came to Elijah. Arise and go to Zarephath. Zarephath was not a city where the Jews lived, which belongs to Sidon. Dwell there. I have commanded a widow there to feed you. So he went to Jerapath, and when he came to the gate of the city, a widow was there gathering sticks. He said to her, bring me water in a vessel that I may drink. And she was going to bring it. He called to her and said, and bring me a morsel of bread in your hand. And she said to him, as the Lord your God lives, I have nothing baked. I only have a handful of flour in a jar, a little oil in a jug, and I'm gathering a couple sticks that I can go and prepare this for me and my son. We are going to eat it, and then we are going to die. Now, what she just said is, is we are completely out of food. 
We are completely out of everything. And Elijah says to her, you know, I used to, I used to drive to Pittsburgh Seminary when I lived in Wellsville, Ohio, and I was a student pastor. And there was this guy who wanted, who wanted to ride with me. I shouldn't tell this when I know it's going on the Internet. But anyway, he used to want to ride with me. And the reason he wanted to ride with me is because he was too cheap to buy his own gas. Okay, and I would leave early, early in the morning, get up here and do stuff, so that meant he had to get out of bed. But what he started doing was he'd start coming later and later. So I'm sitting in my car waiting on him instead of him showing up. That didn't last too long. But this character, uh, because when you pull out, they get the message. Anyway, (laughs) this character would go, he'd go to visit people in their homes. I mean, we're talking not a little church out in the country, middle of nowhere. And what he'd do is he'd go into their homes, and I kid you not, I kid you not, Big, tall, lanky guy. He would walk into their houses and go to the refrigerator and help himself before he sat down to visit. Now, can you imagine if I come to your home? What are you going to do to me if I walk in your house and I start going through your fridge and your drawers? And that's what he did. Here's, here's, here's Elijah, and he's just come to this woman, and he, there's a famine in the land. There's nothing to eat. And he says, hey, can you get me something to drink? And after you get that, I want you to make me some, bring me some bread. She says, I don't have any. All i got left, I'm going to bake for me and my son, and we're going to eat it and die. Listen to what he says, because this is the guy I'm telling you about. Listen to what Elijah says. Elijah says, don't fear. Go and do what I've told you. But first make a little cake of it and bring it to me. And afterwards, you can make something for yourself and your son. You know, come on. For thus says the Lord God of Israel, The flour will not be spent. The jug will not run empty until the day that the Lord sends rain on the earth. And she went and did as Elijah said, and she and her household ate for many days. And the jar of flour was not spent, neither did the jug of oil become empty, according to the word of the Lord that he spoke by Elijah. Here's, I took way too long on that illustration. We're not even, we're not even to the sermon yet. I I will get you through this quick. (laughs) Here's what I'm going to tell you, okay? Lo and behold, There's a famine in the land. All of Israel has nothing to eat. And Elijah comes into town, and he passes by all of these Jewish families. These families, there were plenty of widows that didn't have anything to eat, and he goes to a Gentile. And she's getting ready to eat her last and die, but because he shows up, she is blessed, and the cruise never runs dry of oil. The flower never runs dry, it runs out of flower. She is blessed. But that was a Gentile woman. Now do you, do you begin to get a picture of why Jesus' story upset this gang? I mean, he could have said something that had to do with God doing something for some Jewish folks, couldn't he? But then he adds insult to injury. He talks about Elisha. In 2 Kings 15, Naaman, a commander of the army of the king of Syria. Uh-oh. Uh-oh. Here's some Gentiles again. Naaman, a commander of the army of the king of Syria, was a great man with his master and in high favor with him. He had been given victory by the Lord to Syria. He was a mighty man of valor, but he was a leper. Now you got a real problem. Not only do we got a Gentile here, but we got a leper on top of it, right? Don't go anywhere around him. And the Syrians on one of the raids carried a little girl from the land of Israel and she worked in the service of Naaman's wife. And she said to her mistress, would that the Lord, my Lord, were with the prophet who's in Samaria. He would cure him of his leprosy. 
So Naaman went in and told his Lord. Thus and so spoke the girl from the land of Israel. And the king of Syria said, go, I'll send a letter to the king of Israel. So he went, taking 10 talents of silver, 6,000 shekels of gold, and 10 changes of clothing. He brought the letter to the king of Israel, which read, when this letter reaches you, know that I have sent you to Naaman my servant, that you may cure him of his leprosy. When the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his clothes, and he said, am I God to kill and make alive? that this man sends word to me to cure this man of his leprosy? Understand what's going on here. This king who had wiped out Israel has sent a letter to the king of Israel and said, my good soldier here needs healed of leprosy. You take care of it. And the king that received the letter says, what am I going to do? But when Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes, he sent to the king and said, Why have you torn your clothes? Let him come to me that he may know there's a prophet in Israel. So Naaman came with his horses, his chariots, and he stood at the door of Elijah's house, Elisha's house, and Elisha sent a messenger to him and said, Go and wash in the Jordan seven times, and your flesh will be restored, and you'll be clean. And Naaman was angry. He went away and said, I thought he would come out and stand upon me and call upon the name of his Lord his God and wave his hand and cure the leprosy. Are not the rivers of Damascus better than the waters of Israel? Couldn't I wash in them and be clean? So he went away in a rage. But the servants came near and said, Sir, it is a great word the prophet spoken to you. Why not do it? He said, Do you wash and be clean? So Naaman went down and washed himself in the Jordan seven times according to the word of Elisha, and his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. Now, you may ask yourself this question, so what? Those people that are listening there that day, they're doing the slow burn. So you tell us about this widow woman who was not a Jew. She was a Gentile, and God takes care of her. And now you're going to tell us about this Gentile soldier of an army that destroyed us, emaciated us, and you're going to tell us about God healing him because these Elisha and this Elijah happened to go to them? People in the synagogue that day, you've got to understand something about them. Probably this next truth is pretty important. If they knew anything at all, they knew that they were God's chosen people. They were Jewish. And that sunk into them a sort of pride and exclusiveness. But here's God's truth. Underlying all of this is the message of Jesus that God loves everybody. And not only do the Gentiles need to be saved by grace, but the Jews have to be saved by grace as well. And I want you to look at what happens. Remember, I haven't gotten to my message yet. But I promise you it's going to be short. You'd come last week, wouldn't it? took so long, no kidding. <laughs> when they heard these things, those in the synagogue were filled with wrath, and they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. What has just happened in this passage where Jesus stands up and reads from Isaiah 61, then sits down and tells them, today you've seen it. And then he recounts Elijah and Elisha going to Gentiles. What has really happened here is that this group of exclusive, chosen, proud Jews have just been told by Jesus 
that they were the ones who rejected the prophets. Just as he was in the line of the prophets, they were in the line of those that rejected him. They are outsiders, actually. Don't even know it to what God is doing right now. And that made them mad. So they take him out to the edge of the city to throw him off the cliff. But Jesus passes through their midst and went away. My hometown of East Liverpool, a judge who was a few years older than me, he just got elected not long ago. Uh, he was a lawyer in the community for a while, but he grew up there down on Globe Street, Dom Frank. Uh, he grew up there. He's somebody that everybody knew, very popular judge, very popular in high school, athletic, and everything. Anyway, he died. And um, I was looking at the newspaper online from my hometown, and they had a lot of pictures on there of his funeral service. And one of the things that you always do for people like this is they bring the police out because the police worked hand-in-hand hand, uh, with this judge a lot of times. All of the police showed up. Highway patrolmen showed up. Sheriff's deputies showed up. Um, township police, several of the townships, all the police showed up. And all the city police showed up. And I couldn't help but allow myself to go. For those of you that don't know, my dad was a police officer. And he died when I was 12 in 1974. And I couldn't help as I looked at those pictures because it looked just like my dad's funeral. I was 12 years old. I remember it. The, the police stood in the line. They walked. They do this little thing down the alley between the funeral home and the police station, the city hall. And all the police had their white gloves on, you know. And it got me to thinking, you know, why? Why did it mean so much to me? And the reason is, can I tell you this? When I was 12 years old, everybody in East Liverpool knew my dad. Everybody in East Liverpool knew my dad. But as I looked at the pictures of those police the other day at Dom Frank's service, I realized something else. Time has passed. And not one of those policemen in that picture, and there was probably 60, 70 of them, not one of them were serving or were policemen. You know, my dad would be in his late 80s now. What am I thinking, right? That much time has passed. Nobody's going to remember who my dad is. If I, if I were to go back into town, there's probably just a few people living who went to high school with him that might remember who he was. My reality is that I'm no longer 12 years old. 47 years have passed. The person I knew then and that they knew then almost no longer exists except for in a vague, vague memory of this boy and my brothers. And while he was very popular in my hometown, he's not going to be right now. And it kind of brings me to my bottom line for you. And that is your reality is not God's truth. Let me unpack that for you. Remember the dream the nightmare that seems so very real? I asked you that question at the start. The Jews that were gathered in the synagogue this day, their reality was that they were God's chosen people. That's how they saw themselves. They could trace their lineage, their bloodline back, way back. They'd tell you their grandfather, their grandmother, their great-great-grandfather. If anybody was bad, they usually left them out. They could tell you the family stories from years ago. 
They kept those things alive. They would tell stories about people with names like Jeremiah, Obadiah, Amos, Nehemiah, maybe Abinadab, maybe Joshua. If you're fortunate, maybe even Aaron or Moses. They would know what tribe they were from. They would be able to take you back to their great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-grandparents. They'd be able to lead you back to Abraham and Sarah. And there it is. That's the story. Because there is where it's declared this covenant and that they will become God's chosen people and that all the earth will be blessed through them. They could trace back and they could tell you, you know, I, I can tell you stories about my dad. They'd be flawed because of time and memory. But they could tell you about Abraham and Sarah like it was written yesterday, like it happened yesterday. And they'd be right. They'd be true. But here's the problem. Remember when Jesus said truly, and I said to you, that's one truth, but here's reality. Your reality isn't God's truth, and their reality was not God's truth. The problem became that they took the truth of who they were and allowed themselves to believe that they were so special and so unique that they were God's choosing to the exclusion of everybody else. And that wasn't God's truth, that was their truth. It is true that God loved the people in the synagogue that day in a very special way. But it's also true that God loved everyone that way. It's true that God loved Israel in a special way. And it's true that God loved Jeremiah and Obadiah and Nehemiah and Amos and Abinadab and Joshua and Aaron and Moses in a special way. It's true that God loved Abraham and Sarah in a special way. He loved Abraham and Isaac and Jacob in a special way. Did you ever think about this? God also loved Sodom and Gomorrah in a special way. Did you ever think about it? They also loved those that died in the flood in a special way. Do you ever think about the fact that he also loved the Egyptians and the Babylonians in that same way? And God loved Nineveh, sinful as it was, enough to send somebody to them in the same way. And God loved John Wilkes Booth and Lee Harvey Oswald and Squeaky Fromm and Jeffrey Dahmer. And God loves me and God loves you. God loves the people who are still between their sheets this morning. And God loves the homeless person who was warming in a shelter last night. And the truth is not what I think, that because I'm here, that makes me exclusive. The truth is that God loves everyone the same. And the reality that you got out of bed this morning and the pastor encouraged you in that earlier today and the fact that you made it to church or chose to join us online and did all you could to get here in some way really doesn't make you any more special than anyone else with regards to how God loves you. You see, your reality today doesn't make you any better than anyone else in God's eyes. The only thing that can make you better is God's truth. And here's the truth that overcomes whatever reality you are living with and trusting in this morning. Jesus died for all of us. Period. And that means that those in the synagogue that day had to learn something. The reality they had created, though at one time was God's truth, was not what they had made it to be. 
Our reality is not God's truth. Only Jesus is. I thought about this this week, and I'm about to close. I'll get you through it, but I want to I be sure you get this. I just got to tell you that, that our technology guys are wonderful. They have put up on my screen, they want to tell me how long I've been preaching. They, they put a ticker up there for me. You keep doing that, we'll go another 30 minutes, guys. Your reality is not God's truth, only Jesus's. I thought this week a number of times about these things. Jesus said things like this, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. I'm the truth. It's a person that is the truth. When Jesus stood before Pilate, the question was asked, what is truth by Pilate? And Jesus never answered that question. I know you've heard me say that before, but there's a reason he didn't answer that question because it wasn't a theological question. This was a person question. What is truth? The truth is standing right before you right now, Pilate. It's looking you square in the eye, and it's about to go to a cross for your sins because it loves you so much. Church, our reality, whatever we make it to be, that makes us feel better about ourselves, that makes us feel good about ourselves, that makes us feel like we somehow or another have done something, that's going to win us God's favor is nothing more than our reality, but it is not God's truth. God's truth is that for God so loved the world, he gave his only son, that any of us that believes in him would not perish, but would have everlasting life. Amen. How long do you want to live? <laughs> I almost said, how long do you want me to preach? <laughs> we aren't taking a vote. How long do you want to live? The truth is that when you know Christ, there is no ending. It's eternity with him minus all of the frailties of this life. We're going to sing a song forever. I think we're going to sing a song forever.